Chuck Bundren is a visionary with legendary work ethic. He has always remained humble and hungry, attributing so much of his success to the people that comprise the Trident family, along with his fortunate timing. Listen in to see how timing plays in his favor. As author of Catching a Deckload of Dreams, John Van Am reads Chapter 2, The Birch Brothers. Chapter 2, The Birch Brothers, Almost Like Family. Chuck Bundren has regularly credited his success to being in the right place at the right time, and he's quick to acknowledge the Lord's grace for setting the clock in motion, and sometimes moving the hands a bit. The swift tides of Alaska have their own way of throwing time, place, and people together. Clem Tillian's unfortunate misstep into Halibut Cove offer Chuck the opportunity to save Tillian's life and collect on the debt when he needed it the most. Similarly, the negligence of an incompetent deckhand offered Bundrant the chance to hook up with two of the most famous fishing pioneers on the island of Kodiak, which sits roughly 250 miles southwest of Anchorage in the Gulf of Alaska. Kodiak's primary harbor and many bays lie close to the rich fishing grounds of Shelikov Strait, and the continental shelf off the eastern gulf provides a constant upwelling of nutrients that support a diverse mix of abundant fish and shellfish. For many years, the thriving harbor town of less than 10,000 was listed as America's top fishing port, and it attracted a special breed of fishermen who were willing to brave the violent storms long winters and calamities, both natural and man-made, at sea and on shore. Two of those fishermen were brothers Al and Oral Birch, who'd made their own way to Alaska from Montana. The event that introduced them to Chuck Bundrant was the grounding of their shrimper, the Celtic. She was a schooner built in 1911, Al Birch recalled. She was one of the original shrimpers when they first started developing the shrimp fishery there in Seward. First, we had the Marigold, one of the first boats, and then got the Vida. But the Celtic came up for sale, and it was an old halibut schooner and a much better sea boat. We paid $35,000, fully rigged, with four nets. In those days, the only place you could get a shrimp net was out of Biloxi, Mississippi. So we were fishing the old cotton nets with the old wooden doors, and that's how we started out. Chuck's start on the Celtic came along right after he gave up trying to nurse the gambler's old salmon gill netter back to life. You could say his shrimp fishing career began with a thud. As Al Birch recalled it, we were heading the Celtic out of Seward for another trip when the deckhand ran it right into Kane's head, plowed right into the rocks with the forefoot, bow stem, and keel. We bounced back off the rocks and boy, it was starting to fill up fast. So we ran it up on the beach just around the head. It was about half tide with the tide coming back in by the time we got calmed down, Birch said, remembering the unforgettable rush of adrenaline he felt when the boat started sinking underneath him. She had two watertight bulkheads, one between the galley and the fish hold and one back in the engine room. The galley filled up with water and she went down by the bow, but she stayed floating. So we bring her back into Seward and laid her up on the beach in the boat harbor, 
and wouldn't you know it, the deckhand disappears. Boy, he just split as soon as we laid her up. So Oral and I were down there with the axes and the chainsaws by ourselves, cutting the splintered wood out and putting in a plywood patch over everything so we could get it back over to Kodiak. While we were doing that, about four in the morning, there's an old derelict skiff up on the beach and this tall skinny kid comes out from under the skiff, comes right down and says, you guys need any help? Oh, we did. It was just Oral and me. So we told him we could only pay him cannery wages and that was about it. But that was fine with him. He helped us get her back together. We chose our weather and got it over to the shipyard, got it up on the lift, and started putting in 20 feet of keel, a new bow stem, and a new forefoot. It took us six to eight weeks to get it buttoned up. It's important to note for the record that Chuck Bundren emphatically denies he was actually sleeping under that skiff in Seward the way Birch recalled. But Al Birch is a man of integrity too and would be ashamed to let a story like this one slide by the wayside. He'd showed up in Seward, Birch said. We didn't know him, but he'd picked up an old, old gill netter and run it around to Homer and it sunk on him. He was stone cold broke and had put everything he had into that old gill nutter. So he was sleeping under that skiff, looking for work, and just fortunate that the timing was right. He crawled out from underneath the skiff, and we put him to work. He stayed with us until he got his draft notice. The situation in Southeast Asia was heating up, and Uncle Sam was keeping close track of young men in those days. Bill Buck had already hot-footed it back home to get himself in school. Chuck figured he'd enlist in the National Guard, and soon he was ordered to report to Fort Ord, California. He didn't want to spend his hard-earned money on a plane ticket to Seattle, so he decided to work his way south and pick up some cash along the way. By that time, he was a seasoned deckhand who could plot a proper course, take the helm, and generally make himself useful. So he didn't have much trouble finding work on another shrimper, the Pioneer that was headed south to Seattle. He'd heard they were looking for a deckhand, so when he hopped aboard without so much as a handshake, he naturally assumed he was going to get paid for his duties on the voyage. When the pioneer reached Seattle, Bunnert was ready to settle up, get some pocket money, and catch the train to Fort Ord. He figured he had a bit of cash coming, since he'd loaded up the pioneer with canned shrimp and Kodiak, taken his wheel watch and performed other duties on the ride south, and then loaded the cargo when they arrived in Seattle. When the skipper was done with the math, though, they didn't tally up that way. Deckhands didn't get paid for work on a fish boat when it wasn't catching fish. The skipper informed Bundrant that the cash would be flowing in the other direction, and that Chuck owed the boat $37.50 for the groceries he'd consumed on the trip south. I paid up and learned a lesson about agreements, Bundert recalled. Bundert's tour of active duty in California lasted just six months, and he was eager to get back to commercial fishing. As fate would have it, he was due to be discharged the same day that the Great Alaska Earthquake rearranged the Alaska coastline, March 27, 1964. Centered very close to Seward, the quake measured 9.2 on the Richter scale, a 
the second largest tembler ever recorded. It's difficult to grasp the enormity of the event, but it's instructive to consider the effect on Montague Island at the entrance of Prince William Sound. Measuring 305 square miles, it's the 26th largest island in the United States, and it got even bigger during the quake. Nautical charts had to be corrected in many areas of the Gulf of Alaska, but nowhere was the geographic alteration greater than in Prince William Sound, where portions of Montague Island rose 30 feet out of the sea. Meanwhile in Seward, a huge tidal wave swept down Resurrection Bay and engulfed the town, lifting the Birch Brothers schooner Celtic out of the local shipyard and up into the surrounding trees. Chuck was scheduled to be discharged from Fort Richardson outside Anchorage, but the airport was heavily damaged by the quake and no commercial planes were flying. He managed to get a military hop to Elmendorf Air Force Base and make his way to Fort Richardson to complete his discharge. His first thought was to get back to Seward to meet up with his friends, Alan Oral, but the roads were impassable. With the help of a friend, Chuck was able to hitch a ride aboard a single-engine Civil Air Patrol Cessna that was flying an emergency load of dried dog food to the town. Before climbing on top of the bags for the flight to Seward, he mailed his final military paycheck back to his parents with a request to purchase food and clothing for the Birch families. Back home, they honored his request and packed everything they could fit into a big wooden barrel and sent it to Seward. We were delivering shrimp to Halibut Producers Co-op in Seward when the earthquake hit, Birch recalled, and it wiped Seward out completely. With no boat, the three of us started working cleanup for H&K Construction. For Chuck, the steady work of cleaning up and rebuilding Seward was a godsend. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, he recalled. I was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, at $5 an hour plus overtime. I rented a house for $30 a month from a guy that got so scared by the earthquake that he left town. Though Chuck was riding high on his beach job, the Birch Brothers were itching to get back on the water. We couldn't see much future in construction and got wind of some boats for sale down in San Pedro, California, Birch recalled. So, Oral and I went down and picked up the old Endeavor. It was an 85-foot sardine saner. We were there probably two weeks when we heard this thump. Somebody had jumped off the dock and lit on the roof. Lo and behold, this skinny kid looks around the door and says, you guys need any help? Apparently, he couldn't resist following us down. When we added tanks to the boat for crab, they thought we were crazy. Here we were, building a box inside that boat, and we were going to fill it full of water. The old timers on the dock said the boat was going to break in two, right in the middle when we filled it up. So when the day came to start pumping her full, we had it about half or three quarters full and Chuck and I jumped off the hatch coming into the tank and that really confused them. It was a hot day, the water was warm and we were swimming around in the tank until it filled up and we crawled out the hatch combings. The old guys on the dock were fit to be tied. They just knew it was gonna break in two, but it didn't. 
As it turned out, the old guys on the dock weren't the only ones in San Pedro who took an interest in the crew of the crabber that was soon to set sail for Kodiak. We spent probably three months there getting the boat ready to come north, Birch recalled. There was a family from Alaska that had moved down there and they kind of adopted us. There was also a young girl that they really had adopted. Well, she just wanted to go to Alaska so bad and she'd say, I'm going back to Alaska with you guys. I'm going back. And I said, oh no, we're not having any part of that. We ain't going there. So when we finally pulled out of San Pedro, we waved goodbye to the people on the dock and pointed the boat north. We were off one of the points, not too far along, when suddenly here comes this patrol boat. The sirens are going, the red lights flashing, and the water's just spraying from the bow and they're headed straight for us. Now this girl, she was really fixated on Chuck. So I suspected something was up right away and yelled down, Chuck, where you got her head? Chuck yells back, honest to God, I don't know what you're talking about. But the patrol boat was still coming fast and we figured somehow we were in for it. Turns out, what it was was we were going through a restricted rocket launching zone and they were getting ready to launch a rocket. But we sure thought we had a stowaway and that somehow it involved Chuck until we got that straightened out. Asked to recall his first impression of Bundren as a crewman, Birch's immediate answer was clipped and unimpressed. Some guy from the South. For an instant, Birch was remembering Bundrant like the hundreds of other would-be deckhands walking the docks in Kodiak and Seward, looking for their first job on a fish boat. Skippers hear a lot of stories from greenhorns who claim they can work hard for long hours and little pay just to get the chance to break in. Every one of them talks the talk with one accent or another, but no kid is ever much of anything until he's proven himself on board. Birch's tone changed, though, when he recalled Bundrant's enthusiasm for whatever work they'd throw him. Boy, he really pitched in and started working just immediately. All during the reconstruction, anything that Oral and I'd do, he'd be right there. He wasn't afraid of anything. It was the same way when we got fishing. He worked hard, and he played hard. We were down at the Mecca Bar one night. Hardly anybody in there. Oral and I and Chuck were sitting there having a beer. One of the other skippers came in, a little tiny guy. He looks around and saw us sitting there and he comes over and taps Chuck on the shoulder and just blindsided him, just sucker punched him and knocked him right off the stool. You're sitting on my stool next to my friend, he says. It was really early Kodiak and Chuck wasn't really sure of himself. So he got up and said, Geez, all he had to do was ask me and came over and sat down on the other side of me. But I'll tell you, it never happened again. From then on, when we'd get into those wrestling matches in the bar, and there were quite a few of them, Chuck was always covering your back. He and Oral, I think they used to instigate it, but he would not back down. He would not back down. It was the same thing when we had work to do. We really had trouble unloading the crab in those days. We only had 30 pots, but before we could run through them twice, we'd have a full load. Then we'd have to come in and 
It would take two or three days to unload the boat. Those were the days when Kodiak was king, as far as the crab fishery went. Since the resource crashed in 1981, the area hasn't had a commercial fishing season at all. But back in the mid-60s, if you were lucky, you could fill a boat the size of the 85-foot Endeavor in one day. Back then, Birch said, it wasn't unheard of to have 600 king crab in a single pot, and 200 of them would be keepers. He remembers a particular area they discovered in Knoll Bay, at the south end of Kodiak Island. It was a fantastic fishery, and we just stumbled on it by accident, Birch recalled. We were trying to get our crab pots down off Two-Headed Island, and it froze up so hard that we had to dump them to get the ice off. One element that has been the death of hundreds of Alaska fishermen is the freezing saltwater ice that builds up relentlessly on the rigging, railings, and decks of vessels plowing through high winds and choppy seas. It sneaks up on boats, particularly when their crews are tired from long hours of hauling gear. Once they realize their peril, they respond the only way they can, with hand-to-hand combat beating the ice off the railings and superstructure with baseball bats and sledgehammers, while the skipper heads for the lee of an island or the mainland to escape the wind and spray that continue to pile it on. Sometimes, when a boat is heading directly into a storm, the ice will cover it entirely, giving it the appearance of a ghost ship. Curiously, as the boat gets more and more top-heavy, the ride becomes slow and eerily comfortable. The environment inside the cabin actually seems to improve as the weight of the ice up top takes the snap out of the roll. But with each successive ice layer, the boat becomes less capable of riding itself, dropping ever lower in the water until even a small wave or change of course can suddenly cause it to capsize. When loaded with crab pots, a boat is doubly vulnerable to making ice. The pots themselves weigh 600 to 800 pounds each, heavy enough when they're not iced up. But when the temperature drops below 28 degrees, the huge surface area of the pot webbing becomes an ice-making machine, a perfect matrix for catching snow and freezing spray. Soon the holes in the netting clog up and the pots become solid boxes of ice. More than one terrified skipper has ordered his crew up on the stack to suitcase the iced-up pots by breaking them loose with the crane and tossing them over the side with the coiled lines and buoys still inside. There's no way to retrieve them without the buoy lines deployed, but it's better to lose a few dozen pots than the entire boat and crew. When the Birch brothers pulled the Endeavor into Knoll Bay to thaw out their pots, they were well ahead of the deadly ice game. Sheltered from the seas and wind and out of harm's way, they could drop their iced up pots in an orderly fashion, tossing out the lines and buoys as usual to ensure they could find them again. And what a find they made. We'd already baited them and everything and had extra long lines on them for deep water, Birch continued. So we went up to Knoll Bay and just laid them out to get them to thaw. We came back the next day and they were plugged, absolutely plugged. So we shortened the lines up and left them there. We must have fished for six weeks without hardly ever moving a pot. 
It was just tremendous fishing, but then again, getting them unloaded was a lot of work. Instead of pumping the tank dry right away, like boats do now, we'd pump down the tank as we unloaded. We did that for two reasons. One is that we didn't want to pump down too early and then have to sit there for four or five hours with dry crab, they'd die. The second reason, and it took the plants a long time to catch on to this, is that a wet crab weighs a lot more than a dry crab. One particular time, Chuck was up partying or something and they told us it was time to unload. So we started unloading without him. Oral and I start pitching crab into the buckets and we get down to where we're standing up on the shaft alley in our hip boots and the crab are still floating around us like a big island. Chuck was late coming to work and being late didn't set well with him. So he just bailed into the tank. He was playing catch up and the crab were just flying into that bucket. About the third bucket, the sweat's pouring off of him. He looks behind him and there's a great big pile of king crab laying there and he figured they were piled up solid to the bottom of the tank. Well, there was a little bit of a delay for the next bucket to come down. So he just leans back down on those crab to take a breather. But he didn't realize they were floaters. The crab parted and down he went. Bloop, completely underwater. Whoa, whoa boy, that woke me up, he said. And of course, we thought it was pretty funny. But it all happened because he didn't want to be behind the eight ball. He wanted to pull his weight. More than 40 years after their tall, skinny crewman fell through that raft of king crab into the frigid waters of the Endeavor's fishhold, Al Birch came across some memorabilia that reflected the lifestyles of many of the rugged sorts who sought their fortunes as hardworking fishermen, loggers, miners, and laborers in small towns along the coast. Typically, there was a bank or two in every town, but bankers' hours and ass-busting hours rarely overlapped. And since there's no such thing as a day off or a weekend during fishing season, it was doubly tough for guys like Chuck to take care of business in the usual fashion. After Oral died, Albert recalled, I was cleaning up the basement and I ran across some of our real old records. I found the old canceled checks from the boat and a lot of them were made out to Chuck. So I went through and found a bunch of them that had been cashed in one bar or another. What I wanted to do was get them framed and give them to him at the appropriate time. So I did get them framed and kept waiting for the right opportunity until finally they announced the 30th anniversary of the North Pacific Fishery Management Council. That was also the time that I chose to retire from the council after 27 years. So they were having a big party and we made sure that Chuck was going to be there. It made sense he'd be there for sure because he was so involved in the development of the ground fish and the early Americanization battles. There were hundreds of people in the room who'd been part of what they called the council family for years and years. So they called me up to the podium to say my goodbyes and I turned to Stephanie Matson, the chair of the council at the time, and I said I wanted to make a presentation to Chuck while I'm up there. She says, what are you up to? So I told her about the checks. I'd had them framed in little cutout windows so you could see both sides, particularly where they were cashed on the backside. And she said, 
Sure. So I said a few words and then told this little story. I helped a young guy once, and he's helped me a lot since then, and I'd like to recognize him. So I said, Chuck, will you come up here? Of course, Chuck's surprised because nobody but Stephanie and I know what's going on. And I pulled that frame out and I says, you people probably don't know about the early days of Bundrant, but I've got a bunch of canceled checks here. And I started reading off the dates and the amounts. And I want to thank this young man here for all his years of dedication. So I handed them to him and I says, so Chuck, turn the frame over and look on the back. Then tell the people here where they were cashed. He turns it over and pretends like he's having trouble with his glasses. So Stephanie grabs it away from him and says, I'll read it. I'm not an employee of Chuck's. Then she proceeds to read, Solly's Bar, Pioneer Bar, Solly's Bar. Every one of them was cashed in a local bar. And she hands the frame back to Chuck, who's kind of at a loss for words. Finally, he says, Well, folks, you need to understand that in the old days, Kodiak didn't have any banks. And the only place we could cash checks was in the bars. I got him again that time, Birch laughed. Thank you for listening to Chapter 2, The Birch Brothers, Almost Like Family. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode, Seal Hunting, The Smell of Money, is released on Wednesday, November 20th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deckload of dreams. Mm-hmm.